Welcome to Episode 9 of Immigration Briefs, a podcast that reviews the latest immigration news every week or so. I'm your host, Adam Frank. Once again, I find myself having to apologize for a long absence. We will try to get the podcast out on a more consistent basis from here on in. Let's get right into the news. First, EAD renewal auto extension time has increased. USCIS will be publishing a new rule on March 4th that will increase the amount of time that those who have filed a renewal application for their employment authorization document, or EAD, or work permit card, can work after the current EAD card expires, but before the new EAD card is issued. So for those of you not familiar with this rule, USCIS allows certain employment authorization document holders to continue working for up to 180 days after the current EAD card expires if they file a renewal application prior to the expiration of the current EAD. Unfortunately, with the lengthy processing times, USCIS has not been able to adjudicate new or renewal EAD applications within that 180-day period. I mean, let's be real, they usually take maybe seven to eight months, if not longer. We have clients who've been waiting a year or more, and a lot of people have been losing their ability to work for months at a time because of this. The new rule will now extend the ability to work for up to 540 days from the expiration of the previous EAD card. And it applies to all renewal cases in which the I-765 application is still pending, even those cases in which the 180 days has already expired. Now, keep in mind, it only applies to renewal cases for which the original 180-day renewal applied. While this still doesn't help those waiting for their initial EAD cards, who can still wait up to a year, it does at least provide some relief for those who have had long pending renewal applications. The only question I have is why did this take USCIS so long? It was a simple rule change on their part. They could have done this six months ago, a year ago. It would have helped an innumerable amount of people during the COVID epidemic. But for some reason, they waited until the epidemic is coming to a close to finally change this rule. Next, there's been more immigration abuse cases, or I should say abuse of immigrant cases. There's been a skyrocketing number of migrant teens from Central America finding their way into the undocumented workforce in the United States. They're doing rigorous, grueling work, often meant for adults, like operating heavy machinery and food processing plants, exploitation by unscrupulous employers, and a lack of follow-up by U.S. authorities means many get trapped in this vast network of under-the-table labor. Many of these teens have foregone going to school to secure full-time jobs, mostly because they need the money to, to live. Their families need the money to live. Under the guidance of illegal document brokers, some assume identities that hide their true age from the employers. Many undocumented immigrants, adults and teens alike, turn to labor contractors or staffing agencies to find jobs. This is how many industries find these people, including the chicken processing plants, which are very prevalent on the eastern shore of Maryland. 
Under this arrangement, the plant doesn't have to worry about whether new workers are authorized to work in the country. That's the job of the contractors. Some employers deliberately and brazenly take advantage of the fact that many of their workers are undocumented, underage, or both. The employers may pay substandard wages, maintain poor working conditions, or demand excessively long work shifts under the assumption that their workers are in no condition to complain to anyone about it. The federal government must remain vigilant with all employers and guarantee that wage and labor laws are vigorously enforced for all workers. HHS should also try to make sure that all children are not sent to sponsors who will take advantage of them and follow up more carefully to help fight labor trafficking. As I stated at the beginning, it's an enormous number of people that get caught in this, and it's been growing on a weekly, monthly basis. Next, there are a couple of articles out there that touched on the subject of jobs and immigration and show the importance of immigration in creating and filling job roles. First, in terms of the current situation in the U.S., per the report issued by the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics on April 1, 2022, there are 6 million unemployed people in the U.S. Per another report by the same group, there are approximately 11 million job openings. Yes, even if every unemployed person in the U.S. were given a job, that would still leave 5 million job vacancies. Think about that when politicians start arguing that immigrants are taking U.S. jobs. Furthermore, an article published by LexisNexis discussed the dire shortage of nurses in the U.S. Not only has there been a shortage of nurses over the past decade at least, but the COVID pandemic has heightened this because of the number of nurses burning out and leaving the workforce. The last piece is an article in the Washington Post which examined communities that welcomed immigrants and compared them to similar communities that had not. Specifically, they were looking at certain Detroit neighborhoods. Both neighborhoods had declining populations, job loss, and declining wages. Two neighborhoods have seen population growth in their last 20 years by almost 50%, fueled by immigrants from Bangladesh, Yemen, Mexico, and South and Central America. During the same period, citywide population of Detroit, and both neighborhoods are in the Detroit area, dropped 25%. In addition, tax foreclosures, evictions, crime, vacant houses, all of these were lower in the two neighborhoods and declining at much faster rates. Homeownership, not by absentee investors, also increased in these neighborhoods while decreasing elsewhere. More than 100 new businesses have opened in one strip in one of these neighborhoods. Survey of residents found that they were more satisfied with and more optimistic about their neighborhoods. They felt safer and there was no gentrification. It was also found that the immigrants as a whole were not displacing those who wished to stay, but were filling up vacant properties or replacing those who were leaving anyways. Overall, this small sample shows many of the benefits that have been reported on again and again, and several times on this program, of allowing immigrants into the U.S. and into communities. Increased jobs, less crime, better neighborhoods overall. We, as a country, should be welcoming these people as much as possible, yet we're not. And politicians are still using scare tactics to get people to be against immigration, as opposed to being for it 
not only is this wrong on a human level, but it's actually hurting our country and our economy. Lastly, DHS has proposed a fair and humane public charge rule. Readers of my blog will know that we reported on the previous administration's attempts to amend the public charge rule and make it harder for immigrants of limited means to immigrate to the U.S. The rules were struck down by multiple courts as being unconstitutional. USCIS has now proposed a new rule, one is that is much more humane. USCIS will define the statutory statement of likely at any time to become a public charge to mean likely to become primarily dependent on the government for subsistence. Consistent with the previous standard, prior to the last administration that is, USCIS will consider the following public benefits when making the determination. Supplementary Security Income, or SSI, Cash Assistance for Income Maintenance under the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families Program, State, Tribal, Territorial, and Local Cash Assistance for Income Maintenance, and Long-Term Institutionalization at Government Expense. DHS will specifically not consider SNAP, CHIP, and most Medicaid benefits, housing benefits, transportation benefits, disaster assistance, pandemic assistance, and any tax credits or deductions or Social Security or government pensions or other earned benefits. As can be seen, instead of using this ground of inadmissibility as a tool to keep out less affluent people and those who may have needed help a helping hand at one point, such as food stamps, it is now going to serve its original purpose of keeping out those likely to become dependent on public assistance. Before closing, I would also just like to urge people to read more news stories on immigration issues by the major media. If you do so, you will see that in most cases, increased immigration is helping our country, helping our economy, helping dire neighborhoods grow, and helping us with increased tax revenues, not to mention helping us with the dire shortage of nurses and doctors. Are all immigrants saints? Of course not. There will always be some that commit crimes and are not productive members of society. However, those few who fall into this category cannot overcome the sheer numbers that do help our economy and country, especially considering that all studies I have seen show that immigrants actually do such things as commit crimes at much lower rates than the U.S. population as a whole. Let's start having a real dialogue in immigration that is based on facts, not emotion, and not based on prejudice or animosity. Thank you for joining me for another episode. As always, if you have any questions or comments, please send an email to info at immigrationbriefs.com. Music is provided by Steve Combs, Newsbreaks. I also hope to talk to you again next week. Until then, ciao.